Welcome, Scott. Thank you. Good to be here. So fascinating book, fascinating person to talk about, Charlie Chaplin. This is not your first rodeo, though. Can you talk about some of the movie biographies you've written? I know Cary Grant, John Wayne, and some others, just to kind of set the scene, and then we'll get into Chaplin. Well, I started writing uh, 35, 40 years ago, uh, and uh, all my books uh, come out of a place of professional admiration, basically. I'm not one of those writers who wants to spend, you know, for 15 years writing two volumes on Joseph Goebbels. <laughs> Although I might read those two volumes, I certainly don't want to spend years of my life writing them. So they all come out of professional admiration. And sometimes the professional admiration is lessened. Sometimes it's increased. It depends on the personality. I love venturing into the past. I love trying to make the past come alive for modern readers. Did you find anything that you didn't know before about Chaplin or that we don't we don't know about him? A great deal. There are dozens and dozens of books on Charlie Chaplin. I know. I've read them all. I own them all because he's always been a, a fascination of mine. But I never really thought seriously about writing a book about him because I didn't see a way in. I didn't have an angle, as it were. The pandemic gave me the angle at the beginning of 2020 because I just shipped off my Cary Grant book, and usually I take eight months or nine months between books uh, before I commit to something because they'll let the batteries charge. But I thought, well, this is different. (laughs) I didn't know how long things were going to be shut down. I didn't know if it was going to be six months or ten years. So I thought, well, maybe this is not the time to take uh, eight or nine months off. And everything was closing down, including libraries. And libraries are where, you know, I spend most of my life, really. And I thought, okay, now what's digitized? Because obviously the Library of Congress is closed. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was closed. All the libraries I'm used to using are closed. So what's digitized? And I remember the Chaplin archives are digitized. Everything is digitized. And Chaplin's archives were voluminous. Thanks to his brother, Sidney, mm-hmm. he kept everything. His brother, he, was, he wanted to throw a lot of stuff out when he, when he left the country. Uh, but Sidney insisted because he said, uh, there's a letter I quote in the book. Are you insane? Do you think Churchill remembers everything that happened to him for his volumes of memoirs? No. He has his archives. He has press clippings. He has a trove of secretaries. He said, people are going to be interested in you long after you've shuffled off this mortal coil. And by God, Sidney was right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anyway, the, the Chaplin archives are digitized. And if they like the idea of the project, they give you access to the archives and you roam, you know. So basically, I just roamed around for, oh, about two years. Uh, in the archives. And I found all sorts of stuff. I found uh, uh, there's the FBI file, of course, which I got through Freedom of Information Act, Chaplin's FBI file, which is 1900 pages of uh, disinformation, misinformation, occasional information, uh, documents, all sorts of interesting stuff. And that was the sort of paint by numbers for the opposing forces to Chaplin. The Chaplin archives provided me with the basis for uh, the argument against the FBI archives. So it was a question of, of, of balancing one versus the other. But, uh, yeah, there's a great deal of intimate information about Chaplin's psychology, his working methods, his finances, his politics, to a certain extent, his sex life. Can you explain to people who don't know just how famous he was? At one time, he was probably the most famous man in the world. Well, he was certainly the most famous comedian in the world. For sure. Uh, And he might very well have been the most famous man in the world. And even today, if you show uh, people a picture of him and his tramp makeup, people go, well, that's Charlie Chaplin. Even now. And he's been dead for almost 50 years. 
And he, the last time he played the tramp was basically in 1940 in The Great Dictator. So the, the image of Chaplin survives and, and, and continues to thrive, actually, even as he recedes into the historical past as, a, as an actual human being. The FBI became interested in him. Well, actually, they opened a file on him in 1923, but that was before the FBI was called the FBI. Mm-hmm. It was the precursor of the FBI because he talked to socialists. And right after the Russian Revolution uh, in 1918, everybody who talked to socialists was immediately suspect. So they opened a file on him. It went nowhere. And basically everything went quiet for, oh, 13 to 14 years after that. Uh, they began to get interested in him again. Uh, at the end of the 1930s with his plans to make the great dictator yeah. the satire of Hitler. And then basically they got into the Chaplin business full time for the next 15 years. Why in the world would the great dictator and that speech he gives at the end of the movie, why would that be so frightening to the FBI? You have to put it in the context of 1939 when he starts shooting the picture. Mm-hmm. He starts shooting the picture in September of 1939. It comes out in October of 1940. In America, the prevailing political sentiment was isolationism, by far. Hitler was doing what Hitler was doing in Europe. It wasn't our problem. Okay, France is France. That's too bad. Italy's Italy. That's too bad. Belgium, well, nobody cares about the Belgians. And if he takes England, well, that's too bad, too. But I guess we'll just have to make a separate piece. That was the prevailing attitude on the part of uh, the Republican-dominated Congress, on the part of Joe Kennedy, our ambassador to England. Hitler was Europe's problem, not our problem. Chaplin, and along with a few other people, Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt, understood otherwise, that you weren't going to be able to negotiate with uh, Adolf Hitler. Even England, though, even the British Foreign Office did not want the great dictator made because Neville Chamberlain was the prime minister at that point. And uh, Neville Chamberlain's policy was appeasement. Try to calm him down, give him his morning coffee first thing. (laughs) Maybe he'll go away. Churchill, of course, knew better. But at the time when he put the film into production, there was a huge amount of pushback from within the Hollywood film industry because nobody it's not like the the woods were full of anti-Nazi films at the end of 1939. They weren't. The only people that really were on that uh, were the Warner Brothers. The Mortal Storm comes to mind, too. 1940. Well, that's MGM. Yeah, that's, that's 1940. MGM, yeah. that's, that's 1940. 40, right, right. And that's 1940. Right. That's by 1940. It's getting a little bit better. But yep. in 1939, when he starts making the film, and really isolationism was not beaten back until Pearl Harbor in December mm-hmm. of 1941. And then we had no choice but to go to war. But the fact that Chaplin was a premature anti-fascist uh, made him no friends. It made him no friends in Washington. Mm-hmm. It made him no friends in aspects of Hollywood. It made him no friends in any number of places, even though he, he, he was proven right. And after we were in the war, he began making speeches. He would. He went for FDR's third inauguration, for instance. He repeated the speech uh, from the great dictator on a nationwide hookup uh, in honor of FDR's third uh, inauguration. And he began in 1942. He began proselytizing for opening a second front to aid Russia, who, of course, had been Hitler's allies for a time, and then, <laughs> and then they they made a sudden shift and became our allies. Uh, and for the right wing in America. Russia was, they never really bought it. They never bought Russia as our ally. They bought Russia as our once and future enemy. And there turned out to be a considerable amount of truth mm-hmm. in that attitude. But in 1942-43, uh, they were our ally. Uh, we were fighting for our lives against Hitler because we started from a standing start. 
with Pearl Harbor and the first year of the war did not go well for us at all, a year and a half actually. So Chaplin was kind of swimming against the tide. And that's when the FBI really gets into it because of his proselytizing for opening a second front to aid Russia. And then he got involved in a paternity suit. Right. It was a, a woman he had a relationship with for about a year. They broke up. She came back and announced she was pregnant. She gave him the date of the conception, at which point he knew he wasn't the father because they hadn't had sex. But she went to hit a hopper and the story blew mm -hmm. sky high, which cemented the uh, public image of Chaplin as a uh, politically dangerous libertine. The case went to trial. The government prosecuted him on the Mann Act, which is transporting women across state mm -hmm. lines for immoral purposes. He, he was adjudicated innocent of that after the jury deliberated for an hour. The uh, paternity suit, he took a blood test. The blood test proved he was not the father of the child. He lost the case anyway. The jury found against him, and his, his attempts to appeal were turned down. So he had to support the child that wasn't his. But it was a, you know, a gross miscarriage of justice, not that anybody cared because the tide had begun to turn against him, because partially because of his political activities on behalf of Russia, partially because of his, his, his private sex life. And he did definitely have an interest in teen girls. This goes back to there were some allegations of grooming on the sets, things like that. What did you find with all that, and did, did that change what the public thought of him? He had had an ugly divorce in the 1920s. His second wife, was 16 when they married. She right. was pregnant at the time. The marriage broke up in uh, uh, insanely acrimonious divorce proceedings uh, that resulted in the largest largest uh, cash settlement in the history of California up to that time. I think it was just under a million dollars in 1927 money. So it was a considerable amount of money. She made very scurrilous accusations in her divorce, and it, it made people a little uncomfortable. After that, things were quiet. Uh, he had a relationship with Paula Goddard, mm -hmm. uh, the actress, that went on for 10 years, about 10 years, and made her a star with Modern Times and The Great Dictator. Uh, and they were very happy for a while. They said they were married. They were never married. There is no right. wedding certificate. Right. There is a divorce certificate, <laughs> but there is no marriage. There is no marriage certificate. They were basically living together. They were shacked up in the modern parlance. And they didn't care because it was nobody's business. And it might have cost her the part of Scarlett O'Hara mm -hmm. because she was, there were three she or four She was definitely favorites. a candidate. She was, yeah. Oh, she was a finalist. She had she to was look a finalist for it. along with Vivian Lee and Paul Goddard and there were one or two others. And Selznick had already worked with her and thought she was gorgeous and liked her a lot. But the fact that she was living with Charlie Chaplin and there was no marriage certificate aroused the, the ire of the women of the South who wanted Scarlett O'Hara, even though Scarlett O'Hara is far from <laughs> a, a, moral, uh, a moral avatar. They did want her played by a woman who was living in sin. So the part went to Vivian Lee, who was also living in sin. The difference is she was living with Laurence Olivier. They weren't married, but nobody knew it. Everybody knew that Chaplin and Goddard were living together, uh, and the suspicion was they weren't married. But nobody knew about the, the, the hot affair that uh, Olivier and Vivian Lee were having, so she got under the wire with it. And it was just one of those things. And I'm sure uh, Chaplin must have heard about it on long winter nights in Beverly Hills. But they <laughs> stayed together for, for a number of years after that. On the other hand, it worked out for the best because Vivian Lee yes. is a much better actress than Paulette Goddard yeah. was. And well, she made the part stronger than Paulette Goddard could have made it. 
long winter nights in Beverly Hills. I've never heard anybody say that. That was that was very funny. <laughs> well, you um, can get it gets nippy in January and February. Nippy, believe okay. it or not. We'll say nippy. Yeah. yeah. So after the great dictator, he makes Monsieur Vadou and then Limelight, and then mm-hmm. what what happens? He leaves the country and is not allowed back the in. The war. Can you, can you explain why his yes. visa was revoked yes. in fifty yeah. two? Okay, the the war ends in 1945, and he hurls himself into Monsieur Verdoux, mm-hmm. uh, a movie where he completely abandons the tramp character, who is kind of a vestigial presence in The Great Dictator, uh, to play a, a bank teller who's uh, bankrupted by the Depression and uh, proceeds to make a living by by marrying uh, well-off harridans, right. ugly older women, murdering them for He's their a money. Bluebeard, right? Yeah. He's a bluebeard. It's a bluebeard story, uh, played with touches of humor, of course, as well as some uh, accusatory dialectics. The film is his, was critically reviled. Audiences disliked it. And for the first time, Charlie Chaplin had a flop. He had never had a flop in his entire motion picture career, which in 1947 was 35 years old, 34, 35 years old. The audience had followed him everywhere no matter where he led, including making a silent film like Modern Times in 1936, years after sound rolled in and dialogue was was mandatory, and making a movie like The Great Dictator, an anti-fascist satire at a time when the bulk of the public in America certainly was uh, isolationist. They'd still followed him. All those films mm-hmm. had been extremely successful critically, successful commercially. But the, uh, 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 the Russian proselytizing the paternity suit, even though he was innocent, uh, had turned people against him. And here he goes making a movie about a misogynist, a charming misogynist, <laughs> but a misogynist and a murderer. And it kind of, I think, confirmed his catastrophically plummeting public image, in a sense, because it basically portrayed him as a cold-blooded person without any kind of moral center, you know. And when he's caught, he blames society. Uh so there were it was it was the wrong movie for the wrong audience at the wrong time. And what Chaplin couldn't have known, of course, was that when he began working on the picture in 1944-45, writing on the script, was that the end of World War II marked a, a, a defining moment and a different epoch began. And that was the the blacklist period, right. the anti-communist period, uh, the attitude of the public turned from "we're all in this together." which was the basic premise during the war, to we're not all in this together. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I don't like those guys. You know, let's get rid of them. Yeah. Let's throw them out. And Chaplin got lumped in with them. So Monsieur Ferdoux is a flop. He marries Una O'Neill, mm-hmm. uh, the daughter of Eugene O'Neill, who was 18 years old at the time. He was 53 or 54, 54, I believe. And here he goes, you know, marrying another teenager. Of course, the marriage was one of the great successful marriages of all time. They had eight children together. They stayed married for the rest of Chaplin's life in a a state approaching idyllic happiness. Mm -hmm. But at the time, it seemed like yet another confirmation of the bias against Chaplin. The uh, Hollywood 10 thing hits in 1947, just about the same time as Monsieur Verdot flops. And at that point, he's basically vulnerable. Hollywood cuts him loose. Now, he's independently wealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has he owns his own movie studio, which is still there on La Brea Avenue. It's the home of the Jim Henson Company now. Kermit the Frog, dressed as the tramp, is on the chimney. So you can tell who owned it and who owns it now. The tide has turned. 
He's uh, in big, big trouble. Uh, the columnists descend. Hedda Hopper descends. The anti-communist hysteria descends. And he basically goes to ground and, and concentrates on his marriage, his children, his growing family, which gave him a happiness he'd never had before. And uh, writing his next film, which is apolitical. Limelight. It's a story about a... Uh, it's a story about a music hall comedian who loses his audience. Not too autobiographical. And it's a beautiful film. It is. You know? It's his and, last good film. Yep. And it's his last good film by far. It's a beautiful film. It's much better than Monsieur Verdoux, I think. Yes, it is. Uh, and Completely not because agree. it lacks polemics, but it not because it's it's not polemical, but because it's so deep and so heartfelt and because he completely recreates the Victorian and Edwardian theater of his childhood. Yep, agree. And it's it's just fascinating to see. Anyway. He goes to New York, and he and his wife and the four children that he had by that time with her, they get in the Queen Elizabeth to go to London to open the film in London. Two days out of New York, uh, he gets a telegram from the INS that uh, Harry Truman's attorney general, James McGranery, had ordered that uh, his reentry permit be rescinded pending an investigation on, upon his return. Now, Chaplin had never become a citizen which was another mm -hmm. burr under the saddle of, of the right wing. He thought nationalism was insane. Uh, he thought it was the, uh, what happened in Germany could happen in any country because the seeds were always there. Uh, and he refused to become a citizen. What his friend Max Eastman said people didn't understand was that he'd been born in England and had become rich and famous in America. If the reverse had been true and he'd been born in America and become rich and famous in England, he wouldn't have taken out citizenship in England either it, because the, his, his reasoning was, was absolutely consistent. But he wasn't a citizen, therefore they could rescind his reentry permit. What was not public knowledge, which was clear in the FBI file, in, in, which includes the INS files, is that the INS knew that if he came back and contested uh, their action, they'd have to let him back in. Because basically, he hadn't been convicted of anything. Right. He'd been tried, but he hadn't been convicted of any crime. And if he hadn't been convicted of any crime, they could not deport him, which is in essence what they were trying to do. But Chaplin got his backup because he'd just been, you know, basically uh, uh, told he was an undesirable alien. So he got his backup, said, I'm not going back there. I wouldn't mm -hmm. go. <laughs> I found a letter where he told a friend, I wouldn't go back there if Jesus Christ was president. <laughs> <laughs> so he was a little miffed. Yeah. And he decided to stay in Europe. The problem was he'd gotten blindsided when they rescinded the reentry permit. He had no idea this was coming. Everything he owned was in America. Mm -hmm, right. His studio, his house, his stocks, his bonds, his cash, his film library. Everything was in America. And he couldn't get back in to get it out. So he, there was a, a, a period of, I wouldn't say panic, but certainly great unease because suddenly he was faced with the prospect of the possibility of becoming just like the tramp, you know, stateless, impoverished. Everything he thought he'd worked for was suddenly vanished like a chimera in the wind, in the, in the morning sun. Luckily, there was Una who was born in America, was a citizen. So she came back mm -hmm. a few months after the proceedings were instituted and got everything out, uh, closed, this, closed the house down, put the house up for sale. The studio went up for sale. Sidney, his brother, came over 
and and handled the uh, liquidation of the studio and shipping over the archives, the films, mm-hmm. the uh, the stills, all everything that he had, you know, in storage at the studio. So he could pick up his life and move on. Without that, he would have been A, impoverished, B, he couldn't have written his memoir uh, because he wouldn't have had the, the paper material, you know, the, the research material that Sidney had shipped him. And he wouldn't have been anywhere near as wealthy because the films continued uh, to enchant the public and, and make a great deal of money whenever they were reissued. It was a perilous emotional yeah. and psychological time for him. When he's in exile, he makes two films. Mm-hmm. Both are bad. A King in New York is almost mm-hmm. unwatchable, I think. it's It feels like it was shot <laughs> for like $10. And then he does A Countess yeah. from Hong Kong. This, despite the presence of Marlon Brando and Sophia Loren, that flops as well. So that's basically mm-hmm. it for his film career. Do you agree those two films are just, they look like an old man's films almost? Well, they are an old man's. So they're yeah. unworthy of him. Yeah, unworthy. There's, a, there's, a precip- there's a precipitous fall off from Limelight. Mm-hmm. No question about it. If Limelight had been his last film, yeah. it would have been highly appropriate because it's a summing up of everything he, he was and everything he believed. Uh, no, I, I have no brief for either picture particularly. Yeah. I asked Jerry Epstein about that. Uh, over the years, I talked to a lot of people who worked with Chaplin. His son, Sidney, Jerry, they're all gone now. And Jerry was the assistant on Limelight. He was the associate producer on King in New York and the producer of Connors from Hong Kong. And I told him what we were just talking about, that the last two pictures are not very good. And he basically ascribed it to Switzerland because yeah. about two or th- Two or three months after he was banned from America, uh, which is very fast, he bought a house. He bought a manor house in Switzerland. He lived there for the rest of his life, a 30-room mansion called the Manoir de Bon, which is now a Chaplin Museum. Uh, and I gather it's quite lovely. I haven't been. Oh, I'd love to a go A friend there. of mine was there last week and sent me wonderful emails about it. But it was 30 acres. It had it had a, a fruit orchard. You know, I mean, it was a beautiful view of, of Lake Le Mans. You know, the, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> there's nothing going on in Switzerland. There's no movie as, studio. Jerry, <laughs> there's no, no, there's no nothing. There's yeah. no nothing. People go to Switzerland for two reasons, low taxes and, and to shut the world out. Right. And Chaplin, after 15 years of controversy and constant drumming uh, about being uh, a, a dangerous alien and this and that and the other thing, probably wanted to lower the temperature undoubtedly wanted to lower the temperature and his letters in this period uh when he moves to switzerland please come and visit please come and visit he's writing to james ag to, mm-hmm. to to all of his friends in 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 california and new york but the fact of the matter is you you go to switzerland and you watch goatsy grass you know and you watch the sunset <laughs> and the sunrise but there's no there it's not a creative environment no. if you're a, if you're an artist uh, if you live in Rome or, 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 or Paris, Madrid or Barcelona or Paris or New York or Los Angeles, you are abraded on a daily basis. You know, you're irritated, you're annoyed, you're reading the paper, you're talking to people and they're irritated and annoyed. And you're, 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 you're on point at all times because you have to be to survive. That's not the case in Switzerland. And I think it's in, in simply in lowering the temperature which is understandable on the one hand after what he'd been through, but in lowering the temperatures so consistently, he lost his momentum as an artist and he lost his whole point as an artist because his, his, his creations, his movies had always been very focused and very 
uh, 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 tightly aimed at specific social norms that he found annoying. He, I mean, and, and, and it, that he found destructive. More than annoying, he found them destructive. Uh, the, the modern times, city lights. It's not that society in general is evil. It's not evil. It's indifferent. Mm-hmm. People don't care about other people, especially if they're invisible. That's the whole point of Chaplin's world. It's all about how individuals who aren't part of this basic normal social structure are are ostracized because people don't care. There's that wonderful moment in modern times after we see the production line and everybody's working madly trying to keep up with production. And then we cut to the the boss's office, the, the president of the corporation. And he's sort of sitting there just idly working a jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> so he, I mean, he's not an evil capitalist. He's, he's a bored rich guy who has nothing to do mm-hmm. to fill his days. So he works a jigsaw puzzle while the workers are down there in the basement, you know, struggling to stay even. Well, on the one hand, it's a dialectical point the chaplain's making. On the other hand, it's, it's human psychology he's talking about. People, he didn't think people in mass were evil. He just thought they were indifferent. Right. And that derived from his childhood in, in Victorian London mm-hmm. when he was victimized uh, like a character in a Dickens novel. Yeah, it really uh, is. By the social structure. Uh, and, and that was his basic premise. And in losing that that focus, in losing that sense of, of, of agitation that he always had about social injustice, uh, he lost the impetus of his work. Mm-hmm. As as sometimes happens in people's lives, Scott, there is the resurrection. And it happens when he is invited to come to Los Angeles at the seven, 1972 Oscar ceremony for the films released in 71. And we've all mm-hmm. seen the clips. We've all seen the ovation. It's it's magic. It's it's amazing. What what leads up to this resurrection where he comes back and accepts accepts the honorary Oscar? And it's just it's it's. It's one of the great moments in Oscar history, in my opinion, that happens when he emerges. It's one of the great when moments. When he emerges on the, stage, you know? Yes. And they yes, go crazy. Yes. They Obviously, go crazy for him. Oh, and he's overwhelmed. He, he is. Does, you know, he can't. He's completely overwhelmed. Uh, and he was never, he was always articulate, you know, when he wanted to be, mm-hmm. when he needed to be. But he, he can barely utter uh, three or four sentences because he didn't expect that. I don't know what he expected, but he didn't expect that. Uh what happened when he was kicked out of the country in 1952? Hollywood went silent. He had he had no defenders. There were three three people who publicly defended him: Sam Goldwyn, mm-hmm. William Wyler, and Cary Grant. That was it. Everybody else shut up. Everybody else shut up because nobody. It, by 1952, the blacklist was in full swing. Uh, people were had scattered to London to Mexico that they couldn't stay in America or else they were going to get prosecuted or go to jail or, or simply not get hired. And then, you know, they'd have to go someplace cheap, live cheaper. Uh, but so in 1952, there was no, there was no one there to defend him and say, this was wrong. It's legally wrong. He's not a communist. He's never been a communist. He never donated a dime to the communist party, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, except for those three people, Weiler, Goldwyn and Cary Grant. Um, so I think there was a certain sense of moral failure on the part of thinking members of the academy uh, in the 20 years mm-hmm. uh, that had gone by. And the films had come out. They had been reissued. They were enormously successful and mass. 
and Chaplin was an old man uh, and whatever uh, 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 enmities that had been around in the early, late 40s, early 50s were, were gone. Uh, and so they offered him an honorary Oscar. And he said, yeah, he said at first, no, I'm not interested. And I asked Sidney Chaplin, his son, Sidney was very funny and very perspicacious. And he said, the funny thing was he didn't care about awards. He never cared about awards. He said, what my father cared about was the daily work, was getting lost in a script and making a script come alive and making it work. The dailiness of getting that script on the stage and making that movie moment by moment over six months or a year of hard, hard work of 12 and 14 hour days. He said, that's what he loved. He loved the dailiness of getting lost in a project. He didn't care about awards ever. There were no awards to be seen at the house in Switzerland. They just weren't there. But at this point, he's 83 years old mm -hmm. and not in great health. He's beginning to fail. Old age has laid its hand on his shoulder and squeezing. Uh, and he decided to come back. Also, it would be good publicity for the films. So he came back and was jubilant at his reception because no matter how much he poo-pooed it, no matter how bitter he might have seemed in 1953 and 1954, after setting up a house in Switzerland, I wouldn't go back there if Jesus Christ was president. The fact of the matter remains that it, it was a burr under his saddle, emotionally, psychologically. No one, no one wants to live in a place for, very happily for 40 years and then suddenly be told they're, uh, they're an ingrate and they're not wanted. I mean, that's a tough, that's a bitter pill to swallow. Mm -hmm. And it was it's the fact that he was rich and famous uh, didn't make it any easier. Yeah. So the 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 entire motion picture industry basically saying, ah, we're sorry, please accept our forgiveness. It meant a great deal to him. It meant a great deal emotionally. Uh, and I think it enabled him to put that chapter of his life behind him and to let the bitterness go too. whatever bitterness, whatever residual bitterness he'd still had disappeared at that yeah. point. Here's a question you write about in quotes, cancel culture in the book. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I... I've, no, I only use the uh, phrase once. Right. I use it once. Just I once, okay. With it, just once. I use the phrase canceled once. But how do you... I, I do find uh, in my reviews, I, I've, you know, I, I still have reviewed Roman Polanski movies when they come out, and Woody Allen's movies are bad now. Woody has not been charged with a crime. I do, I do emphasize that. I don't know what happened with him and Mia Farrow and the child, and I don't know if anybody ever will, but if I review those films, I have to review the film. That is my view of it. I, I have right. to separate that from what Polanski did in 1978. And, you know, Chaplin's been kind of dragged into this as well. Where do you come down on separating the art from the artist and reviewing Chaplin's life objectively, or Woody Allen's life, or Roman Polanski's life? Well, I think Woody Allen's only crime is Wonder Wheel. Uh, <laughs> it's a horrible film, isn't it? It's well, there's a, he, he's made about a dozen horrible films has, in the last fifteen years. He's in constant motion to, to no effect, whatever. But that's got nothing to do with. Right. I, I don't think Woody Allen did it. He was investigated twice. He was not charged in either case. That means he's innocent. That's the way the system under works. Under the law, right? Yeah, he was right. under the law. He's innocent. Okay, fine. I, I'm willing to go along with that. Polanski's another case. Right. Polanski's an entirely different case. It's not apples and apples. Mm -hmm. I, I don't lump those two. I, I I say that too. I've told that to people, Scott, that the Polanski Allen cases are not. They're they're di they're different cases. I agree. 
No, they're not analogous at all. Right. They're not uh, not analogous at all. The fun, the funny thing to me, the really funny thing to me is that he was kicked out of the country by a Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't Richard Nixon because you know it, I, was it Harry would be Truman. fun to be able to. It was Harry Truman. I would because I, I went through Nixon's papers exhaustively. You know, uh, I went through Harry Truman's papers exhaustively. Uh, it was James McGranery, uh, Harry Truman's attorney general. McGranery, there is no sign that McGranery ever ran it past it, Truman. Possibly because during the 1948 presidential campaign, Chaplin supported Henry Wallace, hmm. uh, which may have been all by itself enough to uh, tell Harry Truman get get him out of the country. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, it was it was not it was not it was not some Bible thumping, uh, you know, conservative. Uh, uh, from uh, uh, Mississippi. No, it was a Democrat uh, in Harry Truman's administration. So, where's that get us? That get that that's known as irony. That's known as irony. Uh, although I don't think Chaplin was amused. No. Um, so, what was your question? Well, it, it was about it was you know the Polanski Woody Allen judging an art for the art self and trying to separate the oh. man from that. And, and I do try to I'll do that in my film reviews. I, there's a Polanski film coming out this fall. I don't know if I'll see it, but if I yeah. review it, I have to review the film and leave everything else to the side for, you know, what he yeah, did. Sure. And he did something horrible. We agree on that. So, but anyway, just, sure, yeah, separating sure. the art from the artist, I guess. Well, I, I'll be honest with you, which is probably a mistake. Uh, <laughs> I'm the worst person in the world to ask that question of because I leave my morality at home when I go to see a movie or when I read a book or when I look at a painting. Okay. Uh, if I'm looking at a Degas painting of those young dancers, mm -hmm. those, uh, those adolescent dancers, uh, I, I don't really care if he's lusting after them in his heart or in his pants. Uh, I don't know that I, I've never read a book about Degas. I have no idea whether he was in fact projecting something onto those dancers. Oh, and I just look at the painting. Uh, that's what I try to do too with a movie, right? And 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 uh, it, it, I can't imagine anything more obstructive than walking into a movie or reading a book or looking at a painting or whatever uh, with a little note card in front of you. You know, a uh, 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 proper attitude towards women, respectful attitude towards your elders, blah 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 blah. All all these uh, shibboleths, you know. That we that we pretend to that we pretend to honor, but in practice almost never do. Um, I draw the line at rape, murder, incest, yes. you know, yep. felonies. I draw the line at felonies, but you know, do they really expect me not to read Philip Roth because he was crabby to women before he had his morning coffee? I mean, really, one of the great stylists of the English language in the 20th century. Uh, what I think is at work and and. And this is it, it, there's one of there's one angle coming from the right. There's a different angle coming from the left. Uh, the right is attempting to is currently attempting to use government uh, to enforce speech, uh, while the left is use is is attempting to use social opprobrium to enforce behavior. And I find these two these this pincer move very interesting. Uh, it's not the first time it's happened. I think it's the first time it's been semi-coordinated on both sides of the uh, uh, of the political spectrum, though. But uh, I, I I can't imagine what uh, uh, Chaplin would think of it. I, I... <laughs> no, I don't. I, I don't. Uh, we still watch I, Chaplin I draw movies, the... right? Yeah, exactly. 
I, I think most people watch Chaplin yeah, movies. Yeah, I think they do. I mean, too. I know people watch Chaplin movies. They're in constant circulation. Yeah. They're you know they're 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 in heavy rotation on Turner Classic movies right, right. and on streaming services and on Criterion, and the, the you know the the the, the Blu-ray sell. Uh, so clearly, you know, he remains very popular, partially yeah. because he belongs to the past. Right. Right. Let's not kid ourselves. Right. If he was alive now and all this happened today, he'd be in uh, uh, in, in a tar pit up to his armpits. Mm-hmm. You know. Last question. Uh, just as he yeah. was in the 1940s. Right. Last question, Scott, as we wrap up. Where do you rank Chaplin all time in movies in terms of artistry, genius? You know, we think of Hitchcock and Wells and on the acting side, Brando and Olivier and Scorsese, director. I mean, where, where do you where do you place him in the pantheon of, of great motion picture artists? I have this theory, which I think is intellectually uh, uh, reasonable. The Chaplin might be the single most important artist in the history of motion picture. I agree. Because when he starts making movies in December of 1913, he's immediately accepted as something above and beyond the norm of movies of of that period. He's continued to be accepted as something above and beyond for the next 30 years of his career. And all the masterpieces he's made, The Kid, City Lights, Modern Times, The Great Dictator, etc., he didn't belong to the warp and woof of the motion picture industry. He held himself aloof from that, which uh, actually cost him, I think, a lot when the volcano exploded in the late 1940s. In Japan, he would, the, the tramp was accepted as Japanese. In Germany, the tramp was accepted as German. In London, he was accepted as English because he essentially is an English construct. The whole thing of dignified poverty is very English, 19th century English. Mm-hmm. Uh, much more so than in America. But in America, and he was accepted as American. The character was accepted as American. So he unified the world audience in a way that no other character could have uh, or did and made people that much more interested in the movies, in the idea of movies, in the idea of movies as art. A lot of that comes from Charlie Chaplin. Uh, secondly, because he held himself aloof, because he accrued power very quickly and held on to it for a very long period of time uh, and made exactly what he wanted to make with complete independence. He basically established the blueprint for the remote autocratic director uh, that has been imitated ever since by people like Stanley Kubrick right, or Kubrick. Christopher Nolan in the modern era. Uh, they all are not really, you don't see them popping up on game shows. They don't do Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> you know, Kubrick, came, Kubrick no. had his estate in London and didn't, didn't even go to London. He was outside of London yep. and stayed there. And nobody really, and he would communicate by phone and by fax. But he didn't do interviews. He wasn't on the circuit. No one's the same way. The, removing yourself from that gives you power, but most people can't, don't understand that or don't want to understand that because they like the instant gratification of appearing in public and getting applauded. Chaplin didn't care about that. He didn't care about about that aspect of the movie business. It was nice. It put money in his pocket. It put money in Stanley Kubrick's pocket. But ultimately, what made those careers possible was power and maintain, maintenance of power. And to maintain power, you have to make movies no one else is making, and they have to be successful most of the time not all the time most of the time they have to be successful and that's where woody allen's falling apart right it is because his movies got a ordinary Mm -hmm. and b people stopped going to them right because they were ordinary 
So people say Orson Welles was the first independent filmmaker. No, he wasn't. Orson Welles was an independent filmmaker because no studio would finance him after about 1945. Mm -hmm. Because A, he was difficult. B, his films made lost money invariably. Uh, and C, uh, a lot of the money uh, had a way of going into things that didn't show on screen. You know, they went into his hotel bill right, at the George right. Sank in Paris and things like that. Chaplin's money was used uh, carefully and uh, judiciously to make his own movies. Chaplin financed his own movies. Kubrick didn't finance his own movies. Christopher Nolan didn't finance his own movies. Chaplin financed his own movies. He took the financial risk. He put his own money where his artistic mouth was. And that also is something that tells you how serious an artist he was. That's a great point to wrap up. And uh, my guest has been Scott Iman, the author of Charlie Chaplin versus America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. Scott, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Do it again sometime.